Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Today we have with us Yaron Lainartz. Hey, Yaron, or uh, App Voice, I should say. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. And uh, quite a nice uh, pronunciation on my name there, uh, Leo. So you're my third uh, Dutch guest. So I feel like, even though, let's be honest, Antoine and like Donnie are not exactly hard names to say for, for an American like myself. But still, you know, I'm getting better at it. Yeah, it's uh, the, the the thing with my name is, and also uh, noticed that uh, online, it's not a very marketable name outside of the Netherlands. Just for clarity, Jeroen Leenarts, it basically means, uh, Jeroen, it's the Holy, the Great. It's uh, the same as Jerome. Mm-hmm. And uh, my last name, it's uh, the root of it is that I'm the son of a doctor. So that's when in the nice. Napoleonic in the Napoleonic age, they uh, they they had to like give out last names to people, and okay. somebody somebody came up with that. Really, that's super interesting. That's so funny. That's like people coming to Ellis Island and like the guy not knowing how to pronounce it and going, "Ah, you're Smith," you know? Yep. Yeah, stuff though, like that. Yeah. Do you ever get called Jerry by any chance? Uh, yes, uh, a lot. And uh, uh, they, they call me uh, Jerry, Jerome, uh, Jay. That's also very convenient for people. <laughs> yeah. Even so though it, the J is silent, ironically. Uh, yes, mostly, yeah. The, the A Dutch person would feel that they're pronouncing the J. But... As a Y, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad I was able to pronounce your name today. So we're doing a little experiment today. I was on your episode yesterday uh, talking about my year in review. Mm-hmm. And now I'm having you on to talk about year in review and how launching this new podcast has gone and what how has development gone uh, as far as 2020 is concerned. So first, I'll let you introduce yourself uh, and your podcast, of course. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my name is uh, Jeroen. Uh, my podcast is App Force One. In my ep- episodes, I try to give people a short overview of this week's news in iOS land. And on top of that, I do more topical episodes which are focused right now on a specific person. So that's an interview with someone. So currently, I release two episodes each week, one shorter and one a bit longer. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm still trying to find my voice. But what I do notice is that people have sort of an appreciation for the short-form format because of the content that they're getting. And for the long-form format, it basically involves the persona that you're interviewing, that uh, they bring a group of people that are enthusiastic about this specific person. And then, well, as a podcaster, I hope that some of those listeners will actually stick on my feet and uh, start listening uh, on my podcast. How did you decide to just go ahead and start a podcast this year? Uh, I mentioned that in my interview with you, I think. I did a conference-type talk for the Dutch Cocoheads. That's uh, a a meetup organization that I also uh, run. And I was uh, doing that online and we were pre-recording it. So I was, for my sense, I was talking to a wall and it was driving me crazy. It was so hard for me to focus on my content and to be able to have a decent uh, so to have a decent flow in my talk because I'm one of those people if I'm presenting I really take the energy from the room and I really look into the room to see if there's any adjustment that I need to make in my presentation and in my content and in, in, and in my delivery and I couldn't do that uh, so I was getting crazy and I was thinking okay so this is something I need to deal with and uh, somebody told me you're taking the Dutch approach Jeroen so what I did was uh, do it more and do it quite a lot more often so uh, the idea was let's start a podcast because then I'm just talking to a wall a lot more with an uh, imaginary audience 
uh, of course, you hope that the audience is actually real, but uh, that's that's actually the process that I went through. So you you still run uh, a Cocoa Heads group, correct? Yeah, I'm, I've been running the Dutch Cocoa Heads for over seven years now. Uh, I sort of rolled into it, and we we've been doing in person meetups. And sometime, I think over two years ago, we started live streaming the events because hey, why 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 wouldn't we? Uh, just for fun, uh, because we we always had people that were not able to attend and we wanted to record the presentations anyway. So why not live stream them? Because all the gear is there. We only need a Wi-Fi connection. Then COVID uh, reared his ugly head. Uh, and then we were like in this situation, okay, what do we do? Uh, we can stop like a lot of meetup organizations have done uh, over the uh, over the year. Uh, or we can try to adjust and see what we can do. now. And we ended up with a online format that we're trying to develop to get the more social interactions in there as well. But uh, right now, it's a, it's a monthly live stream on YouTube. And then the, the videos are then edited afterwards and then published on YouTube as well. So that you have like a nice, sweet, good video presentation of the person uh, presenting. And uh, the biggest benefit of our speakers is actually that they now have a video available of them presenting a topic that they can actually bring to a call for paper on any conference that they want to uh, subscribe to. Yeah, I've tried launching a Cocoa Heads group. Um, I tried last year, last year or two years ago. It just, it was way too difficult. So I was, I actually hosted it at an Apple store. Mm-hmm. We do have an Apple store in town. We're not, we're not, we're small, but we're not that small. And uh, that was just a really interesting experience. But yeah, I actually spoke at a Cocoa Heads this year, Cocoa Heads Hamburg, um, when I wanted to practice a talk. Um, I find like, Public speaking at a meetup, especially Cocoa Heads, is a great way to practice. Yeah. How has it been like organizing and maintaining a meetup group uh, this year? Well, surprisingly easy, actually, um, because it involved a lot less traveling for me because I live at the other side of the country. So if you're in the US, you say other side of the country. Well, the Netherlands, it's like uh, right. one, 120 kilometers. Then you're at right. the other side. <laughs> um, but still, it's, it's, it's a one hour to two hour drive, depending on traffic. Yep. Yep. Um, so uh, for me, it, personally, it's been a lot easier once we made the decision. And the benefit that we already had was that we were already having sponsorship agreements in place. Uh, because nice. the, the format that we have uh, had with the in-person meetups is that we would be on site at a company, and then this company would uh, host us. So that involved food and drinks, and then providing one speaker, and we would be providing the other speaker. Uh, of course, that whole format uh, fell away. Uh, but we had sponsor agreements in place and we had like, well, we have a, it's not a big bank account, but enough to be able to spend uh, some money strategically to be able to continue, just buy some services and buy some hardware to actually be able to uh, execute uh, correctly in the online format because it did take some getting used to for us, but the end result for us was actually less effort than uh, the in-person meetups. I wanted to let you know about the great experience I've had with this host hosted on Transistor.fm. It's been absolutely fantastic and really reliable. If you are thinking about starting a new podcast, I highly recommend taking a look at Transistor. Now, I know there's a lot of free services around, but there are rules about how long it takes to publish a show or doing any sort of like ad insertion, things like that are going to affect the quality of your show. 
But if you want to do something serious, uh, serious for your business, I would definitely take a look at Transistor and spend a few bucks there. You can actually try Transistor for free for 14 days. Give it a shot. Try that new podcast you want to do. It's definitely going to be something worth your trouble. Transistor is fantastic when it comes to building up something for your business or something you really want to grow long term. I think Transistor is going to be the host for you. They're really hands off about the content and what they do. And they have a really great guide I'm going to share to you about how to start a podcast. You may be thinking to yourself, well, 2020 might not be a great year to start a podcast. But in fact, that's not true. There's been a lot of recent reports. And I know personally for myself that my podcast has grown this year, even though folks aren't exactly commuting. So take some time, go to transistor.fm and use the code empower apps. Just go transistor.fm question mark via equals empower apps links in the show notes and give transistor a shot for 14 days. And let me know what you think. I think Justin and John have done a great job and they continue to do a great job building that platform. And they have a lot of great hosts, folks like uh, cards against humanity and Kickstarter games, folks like that who really know what they're doing with their podcast, that's where they go to. They go to Transistor FM. Thanks, Transistor, for helping host this show and use the link below to give it a try for 14 days. How about like getting speakers? Did that work out for you? Uh, yeah, it's easier because um, we can now source speakers from the entire world instead of uh, only the Netherlands. And, and with that, mostly speakers from the Netherlands in the Amsterdam area. Because uh, getting somebody from the other side of the country into Amsterdam is, uh, again, the traffic thing. Right. Uh, but now with the online, uh, there's yeah, we only need to do a shout out on Twitter. And uh, we have like uh, tens of speakers uh, willing to, to have a go at it. And uh, one of the challenges that we do have is that we want to make sure that new aspiring speakers get a chance. Yeah, that uh, makes but, a lot of sense. But you don't want to have a series of, of five fresh new speakers without any experience, well, doing a, a series of bad presentations is bad for your uh, listenership because of, or bad for our audience because they won't stick anymore. And mm-hmm. that's that's been the biggest battle for us uh, over the, this year that we've seen that the number of live viewers have been dropping, but the number of views on the videos once they're edited, uh, they've been rising significantly. So people are watching the content on their own time or on their own terms uh, instead of being... Um, uh, engaged in the community and that's actually also a big part of what we want to facilitate people networking because uh, people that get in touch with each other they can create new things help each other and make sure that uh, everybody ends up in a better place at the end of the evening do you have like a slack group i would assume for coco heads nl yeah okay yeah we we one of the benefits that uh, we have as uh, coco heads nl is that we've been incorporated as a non-profit and because we're an official non-profit in the Netherlands, we were able to get on the free tier with uh, with Slack, actually. Nice. So Slack is Slack is sponsoring us uh, with, a, with a Slack account. And I think uh, we have about 300 active people on there. Nice. And uh, yeah, it, it is, you do notice that it's a big core group of attendees uh, with, uh, with the meetups uh, that, that help us keeping the community going. 
but I do miss the in-person meetups a lot. I agree with you completely. Well, I miss conferences, actually. I mean, that's really what it is. Like, I mean, it's really hard to network at a conference. I think a lot of people don't feel familiar with it. I've become savvy with Slack over the last few years. But, like, a lot of people aren't comfortable with it as far as networking is concerned. And also there's, like, I don't know what platforms you you were using, but there is quite a variety of different platforms this yeah. year that have that have sprouted up uh, for doing remote conferences and they all have their different idiosyncrasies in, in order to like really network. And, and it's doesn't to a lot of people it's, it's feels uncomfortable. Um, yeah. With, with, with Coco hats right now, it's a, it's a live stream uh, and we uh, invite people to join us on Slack because we have uh, an unlimited availability there for people to join. But we are still looking for ways to create more interaction between our attendees because uh, on Slack, people are just uh, posting their questions and then once the event is over, the event is over. And uh, the biggest feedback that we're getting from the core group of attendees, so that's the people that have been with us for a long time, is that they actually they, they, they actually miss seeing the familiar faces mixed in with the new faces and uh what 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 with cocats now what's always been the case is that's been a it's been always been a very welcoming group so if there's somebody new in the mm. evening it's not that they would like be like harassed by the other attendees but there was always somebody that would step up to this person and say like hey it seems like you're new here and uh, how's it going where do you work what are you doing just getting like the interaction going and making people actually feel comfortable within yeah. a new group of people yeah, like I've noticed with some of the conference platforms, they have some sort of way to just like take a random group of people like Zoom does this, right? Where you mm-hmm. can take a random group of people and be like, group them up and they can start talking to each other. So I don't I don't know if like you've looked into that or even just doing Zoom and then posting the recorded video. No, not not really. But I did have some experience with iOS Dev Happy Hour. So that's yes. the uh, that's the thing uh, Alan has been doing with like yep. yeah I was I, I saw you there that's right yeah. yeah it's it's like with uh, they had like f- over three hundred people uh, in at the last edition yep. and it was so awkward for me the first time that you just drop in a room with basically eight random uh, other people yep. that you don't know in any way fa- way or form and then just getting a getting a meaningful discussion going it's it's yes. so awkward it's. Uh, it's really but, awkward and it takes a while for you yeah. to get that comfort level that by the time you get it, it like becomes really difficult to like, it's like, <laughs> Oh, we got five minutes left. Finish, finish the conversation. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. So yeah, but we're, we're looking into that and, and slowly experimenting, but I must say that in this regard, we've been more in a observing role instead of like taking action because we, we were hoping that this whole thing was over by summer last year, but then <laughs> stuff went downhill uh, from there uh, and we are at the situation that we are right now and but fortunately there are some vaccines uh, being rolled out uh, across the world yes. so maybe next summer we'll be able to uh, to do more in-person things uh, again so speaking of next summer what what is your plans for this year as far as 2021 is concerned like or how are you going to deal with you know, because we like we, even with these vaccines out, like it's a mm-hmm. little tough to say, oh, yeah, like by summer, everything is going to be great. Like we don't it, who knows. Right. There's no guarantee. So that's, I think, like the biggest challenge is how are you going to deal with that in t- this year? Yeah, well, um, I, 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 I divide my time across three uh, main areas of responsibility work wise. Of course, uh, I, I have a day job. 
and I work with uh, Achmea, that's a big Dutch insurance company. And uh, we've been working remotely with, I think, 15,000 people from uh, March uh, 2020. And most likely we'll keep on doing that uh, into the next year for quite a few, uh, a long time. Uh, and they also actually have uh, announced that uh, working from home three days a week is the new normal, uh, regardless of what the new situation will be once the uh, coronavirus has been uh, dealt with. Are you happy about that? Yes. <laughs> okay. Because okay. my previous job has been uh, working uh, remotely most of my time. And the hardest part that I find with going into an office uh, five days a week is just dealing with uh, family life uh, alongside that because I was used to being able to go uh, downstairs and, and help my wife and help my kids uh, when needed and to, to, to be available at those uh, busy hours uh, in the in the home life. Yep. Uh, and uh, th- I've been able to do that a lot more in this uh, whole corona crisis again. And I'm happy that they're making a shift towards more remote work, uh, actually. Uh, then next to that, uh, there's the Coca Head Sanel, which is, uh, it's not a big effort it's uh, it's once a month a meetup and then some organizing the meetups are in person but everything else around that has always been remote so that's not a big change really and then there's uh, the app force one uh, thing that i'm doing which is uh, a little bit of contract work a, l- a little bit of podcasting and uh, hopefully a little bit of product work and uh, product work is going to be the biggest development uh, next year because i'm actually writing a book uh, on uh, being a lead software developer and that's something that is based in my experiences at my day job. Because at my day job, I've actually been put in the place that I'm now the, the lead iOS developer on the team of about nine iOS developers. And over 2020, I really had to move into the role. So instead of being just a senior developer, I now had the lead role on top of that. And I've been struggling with it because your day looks a lot different uh, if you have to tag lead on your forehead. And I'm now finding ways to actually deal with the onslaught of responsibilities that you have as a lead developer because you have to look out for your team, you have to coach your team members, you have to be available to make decisions, you have to actually consult and coach your business sponsor and all these different responsibilities. I'm I'm learning on that and my lessons on that, I'm trying to put in my book. Do you have a blog by any chance? Uh, no, tried that, filled that, and uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't try that again. I've noticed that the shorter form writing is not something that I, uh, I don't know, it's it's not something I have the patience for. Um, yeah. It, I tried it, but it's very hard for me with blogging to, to get on a rhythm like uh, Antoine has been doing uh, so wonderfully over the years because he's very successful with his blog and and uh, if if i just see what he's doing uh it, it just makes me nervous to have to write 800 words every week and uh, have it in a decent quality and then publish it that's uh no, i don't know for me it, it looks like a task and it's not something that i'm i'm very passionate about and that i feel like I, it would give me energy well, I'm just curious, transitioning, like jumping right into writing a book without any writing mm-hmm. being done. Like, are you planning on just like writing the book from scratch and going that route? Or are you thinking like, oh, I'm going to test some blog posts and then go ahead and po- like, okay, then turn those into a book? No, it's 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 really uh, the, 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 the premise of the book is really the I'm writing the book that I wish I had like a year ago. Mm, Um, so that's that's my guiding principle really Uh, i have an outline basically available that that gives me some 
uh, it, it gives me some roadmap on what I should be working on and what I should write and how it should look. Uh, and I'm now in the process of, of working with a few people that are willing to review uh, the manuscript uh, every once in a while. Uh, nice. So to make, to make sure that it's, uh, <laughs> it makes sense in some way. And uh, of course, um, I'm not publishing through a publisher. I'm doing it through, I'm writing on LeanPub and I'm probably going to publish on, uh, on Gumroad. Yeah, and uh, once that's done, I'm probably going to be looking into uh, going into Kindle Direct Publishing as well. Well, so good luck with that. We'll yeah. definitely, uh, hopefully, when you have a link, we can we can share that. Yeah, because I think that would be very interesting to our audience. Yeah, I'm still. I actually had a phone call this evening with uh, with a friend of my wife, who's really good with uh, graphics, and uh, I'm I'm trying to create a partnership with her to get like really nice graphics into the book as well so that's because uh, right now the front cover is like a big picture of my face uh, <laughs> it's it's like yeah it's again my face okay a bit self-centered so i need to change that because uh, I, I want i want people to 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 buy the book because of the content and not because they think i'm a nice guy um so that's 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 something I'm, that i'm working on as well and uh my goal is to have it finished by mid-March of 2021 and then work on the improving of the content. So if there's any feedback, picking that up and also the marketing aspects because I already heard and read from various authors that they said like, yeah, writing the book is like 20% of the work and then yeah. marketing it is like the, 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 the rest. That's the 80%. Yep. yep. I think that's true with any product. It's like the marketing yeah. is a big part of that. So and yeah, and, well, and, that, and that's also a big part of the fun uh, really because uh, the, the the podcasting is relatively new to me the writing of a book is relatively new uh, the marketing I'm, I'm learning all kinds of new things and what i'm noticing is just uh, the acquiring of of new knowledge and new skills is really what uh, what lifts me up as a person so that that really makes me want to move forward and it it really it, i don't i don't know it it releases some kind of energy within me that i'm like okay let's uh, let's go ahead, let's go into this full force head first and just uh, dive in and see where i end up yeah yeah totally i'm on the same page it's it's the learning oh that really keeps me going and keeps keeps me passionate and i think too it's it's interesting you know running any sort of business venture like whether you want to be a cook or a baker it's not running being a cook and a baker that's a bulk of the work with that business it's the business and that's a big part of that like you said with like the marketing and finding somebody to do graphics so i i don't even know how much like code code you're doing or even writing you're doing with the book but i bet a vast majority of your time is going to end up being the marketing and like managing and all that stuff yeah the the, the book itself it's it's not a it, it's focused at software developers but it, it's not a code related book so it's it's more about the the people skills and the the self-management skills that you need yeah. as a as a software developer that's transitioning into a somewhat of a lead role basically it, it i'm trying to also to fill in the gap that i felt when i was reading the book by camille fournier the manager's path because she wrote a book about forms of leadership that you present in a software tech company and one of the aspects of one of the chapters in the book was also the the lead software developer role. And I really agreed with her thinking about that because being a lead software developer has nothing to do with you being a, a junior, media, or a senior developer, but it's about an additional set of tasks that you get as a software developer. Uh, but I wish she would have dived into that topic a lot more within her book. So I'm, I'm really 
trying to fill that gap or basically expand on that area or on, on that chapter of her book, not by taking her work, but that was also one of the trigger points for me to actually start writing this book because yeah, what I mentioned, the book that I wish I had like a year ago and uh, I, for everybody doing software development and considering doing new things, it's, it's one of those books that you should put on your reading list uh, if you ask me. Hey folks, I wanted to talk to you again about app figures. You probably already know them about their analytics and their app store optimization. App figures really is about giving app makers the tools they need to get more downloads and revenue. Well, now app figures can help you track competitors for how many downloads they're getting and how much money they're making to their audience demographics and which SDKs they use. Their competitor intelligence really gives you great context. Say a competitor adds like a new feature or was mentioned in the news recently. With app figures, you can see if that brought in more downloads right away. Got a great idea for an app or a game? Well, with app figures, you can figure out how big that market is and how much money you could be making with it. And that's just scratching the surface. Whether you're growing your app or building a new one, app figures has the tools you need that will reduce the risk but also get you more downloads. You don't need a large budget or a data science degree to do this kind of thing. AppFigures has made it affordable and simple. On top of tools, AppFigures also provides a lot of great guides and tutorials to take you step-by-step through gaining more visibility with ASO and increasing your revenue by learning from your competitors. They just released a free guide on that, actually. So go ahead, head to the link in the show notes, and try AppFigures for free. If you like it, use our special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. Thank you, AppFigures, for sponsoring our show. Very cool. Well, it sounds like you've learned a lot as far as being a lead software developer. And it seems like a big part of that is... Um, dealing with scaling and security, that seems like the big uh, bulk of what you've had to deal with as a lead software developer. Um, Why do you think those two things are so important, um, being a lead? Well, when I started working at the place of work that I work right now, uh, I I was hired there as strictly a senior software developer. And uh, when I started working there, I noticed that there was a lot of room for improvement in the code base. And then things shifted around a bit within the team. And then I was offered to to take uh, the lead role because uh, it was an external contractor that was doing that role. And uh, I had some opinions on his uh, way of working. And the end result was that this contractor was uh, let go and I was moved into his position. And uh, then we really, we started working. And uh, I had a lot of ideas uh, because the code base that we're working on is big. It's old. Uh, it had a lot of Objective-C, fortunately now a lot less. And one of the aspects that's important for this code base is because it's insurance, including life insurance, uh, health information, uh, there's a lot of privacy-sensitive uh, information in the app and also a lot of privacy-sensitive information that's being communicated uh, in this product. So basically, uh, you can si- you can see some aspects of your medical history uh, any ailments that you might have had or stuff like that. It's not something you want to have like flying around on the street uh, that people can actually see that you've had some sort of condition or whatever. And that's the premise of the of the app that everything that's in the app needs to be secure. And uh, because of the way the app is built up, uh, there's uh, basically the entire product portfolio of an insurance company is in there. And I might say in the Netherlands, it's a big insurance company. 
And that means that there's products in there in the range of basically uh, health insurance, uh, insuring the, the, the house that you're living in, uh, insuring the stuff that's in your house, and basically anything you can come up, can come up with. And on top of that, you also have like a banking section in their app. So it's it suffice to say it's big. And we need to deal with this complexity. Uh, and while we were de- dealing with the complexity, we needed to make sure that everything was secure as well. Uh, because one of the things that we've started noticing is that over the years, a lot of stuff has been added to the app. And let's say some developers stepped into a few pitfalls that were quite concerning in regards to security. So we needed to come up with ways to take out these issues, but being able to migrate the existing app with an update to a new, better situation. So not only did we have to deal with making it secure, but also making sure that what we have can be moved into the new secure situation. How would that look? One of the things that I noticed was that there was like a sort of a big fault uh, embedded within the app that a lot of data was stored into. but And the fault itself was really secure, but the key to unlock the vault was not really secure. So there were some ways available that you could get a hand on the actual key if you were if you were like a a, a what what's the term for that? If you were Hacker? a yeah if you were a malintent uh, end user. And and uh stuff like that we really had to deal with. And what was interesting in it as well is that we at the start of 2020 we were like a really big team. So there was, uh, I mentioned uh, eight iOS developers. I'm number nine. Uh, but there was also a team in the same team, nine Android developers and the design uh, engineers, test engineers, and all the overhead that's also involved with a project. So you're dealing with a team in the size of like 30 to 35 people. And that doesn't really work. If you have a team of this big and you want to be agile, uh, you have to do something. And one of the most obvious things that you can do is to split up the team in several smaller teams that are, have a smaller dedicated focus on what they're working on. But the architecture of the app was not supporting this new uh, team structure. So what we were seeing when we made the switch to this new team structure at the start of 2020 was that we were getting a lot more merge conflicts, a lot more discussion really about uh, code level stuff. And one of the things is with code, you shouldn't be having these discussions on code level stuff. You should uh, be able to just uh, work within the uh, agreements and architecture that you set out uh, amongst the developers and then just be able to merge your stuff without uh, too much hassle, really. And we noticed that we were getting increasing problems in that area. And I had an idea what this might be. So we started looking. And then the end result was that our agreement was that the code base was pretty much a big ball of spaghetti and we needed to untangle a lot of things and what we tried doing initially was to just re-architecture certain things but this just wasn't moving quick enough for us but fortunately we were seeing the end of 2020 that we quite likely would be able to drop iOS 12 as a release target and not only do you get Swift UI and combine available in iOS 13 and onwards, but also the dynamic loading of frameworks is a lot quicker in iOS 13. Because in iOS 12 and lower, if you have a lot of dynamic frameworks, then the uh, launch time of your app can uh, increase significantly, actually to levels that are unacceptable. And with iOS 13, 
that's uh, that's no problem at all anymore. Of course, there is some overhead, but it's it's not increasing by that large margin anymore. So what we decided to do was to actually uh, create a, sort of a framework architecture that was in line with uh, how the teams were divided and what responsibilities were actually assigned to each team. So that if a team was working on some framework, uh, if somebody else was doing work on the repository as well, if you're not touching the framework that somebody's working on, most likely uh, you won't be hitting each other's code, you won't have any discussions, and you can just move forward. And uh, because of the tool choice that we made, we also don't have Xcode uh, project files or Xcode workspaces uh, committed to source code anymore. So you can't have uh, you can't have conflicts on stuff that you don't commit. So uh, that also was uh, the bi- a big reduction in the complexity that we were having with the coming to an agreement between teams. And yeah, so we basically on during 2020 we switched uh, to a new team structure and we switched to what I call a micro framework architecture. And the core functionality of the app is now composed out of 25 frameworks uh, at the moment. And then the app itself is an iOS uh, app. I forgot to mention that. How are you, um, just briefly, how are you not committing projects and workspaces to source code control? Yeah, when we were looking into untangling our mess, really, because they had a big bowl of spaghetti, uh, we looked into ways to actually do that. And one of the decisions that we made was that we wanted to do small frameworks. Uh, I don't know if you ever tried creating a framework by hand in uh, in Xcode. Uh, it's, it's a lot of work and a lot of stuff can go wrong. So we started looking for tooling that would actually support this and uh, also tooling that would help us build all this stuff. And for one of the first things that we came up with was the, the was was Bazel and uh, and Buck and uh, the RIP architecture of Uber, uh, but to us that was like way too many, and also the 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 hurdle on getting into these tools it it pretty much demanded a dedicated person doing the development of your build architecture, and since we're still a reasonably reasonably small team, that wasn't available to us. But fortunately, uh, at SoundCloud, uh, they did something interesting as well with uh, Twist.io, which is now an open source product. And uh, basically, I started investigating that uh, during the summer. And over a period of, I think, three weeks, I came to the conclusion that this was the way to go for us. And then another four or five weeks to actually create a a make file that would transition the existing structure uh, into the new Tuis.io based structure with one execution. Uh, the, w- the reason that I did that was that with this make file, all the development of the teams could proceed in the way that they were uh, already familiar uh, with. Yes. And I could develop the new structure piece by piece uh, as, uh, as I learned and understood the tool uh, to a higher level. And uh, when the day came that uh, the script was good enough, uh, we executed and uh, then I had did like I think a week of explaining and um, and educating uh, the other team members, and uh, I must say that the transition went really well, and everybody has been a lot happier ever since. And now the in 2021, the the road is open to us to actually make sure that we can actually do. Uh, we already have a composed architecture with micro frameworks, but now we want to make sure that the composing of the architecture is done in a more pluggable way so that 
as a software developer on our projects, I can now choose to say, okay, I just want to like uh, work on this subsection of all the functionalities so that if I'm working on this subsection, all the other stuff, I don't have to compile. And if I don't have to compile it, my, uh, my build time is way lower because we are on a project that currently has uh, a build time on Intel Max, I must say, of about five minutes uh, on a clean build. Bad. And it's not bad, but it's yeah. still too bad. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a long time to wait. Yeah, so, uh, and especially if since we're doing a sort of an agile process, we're constantly switching uh, branches. And every time that you switch a branch and you do that within uh, the same context with Xcode, then Xcode says, uh, well, all the caches are invalid, so let's do a clean <laughs> build again. <laughs> yeah. And and since we're working at home, we don't have the luxury of just uh, pressing build, getting up and grabbing a coffee, because that usually took around uh, four to five minutes. Right, right. So one of the things you talk about is uh, security issues. What are some examples of security issues you see a lot of developers run into commonly? When you look at iOS uh, development, the most of the things that you run into is basically ignorance of the actual developer of what is available on the platform. What I mean by that is that a lot of software developers are not using the keychain to the level that you should. And a lot of software developers are not checking their network connections uh, to a level that you should. Actually, you see a lot of app transport security exceptions uh, appearing in uh, in plist files uh, if you see some source code uh, around. And I'd say the biggest problem in security-wise is just is just storing stuff on the device uh, in the wrong uh, storage format. So. Uh, just dumping it in the in the document folder of the app uh, instead of storing the secure elements in the keychain. And if you're storing it in the keychain and biometrics are available, why not making it more secure by involving the secure enclave as well? Yeah, the, I've run into that with like the keychain. One of the issues just being like how it definitely has a much more Objective-C flavor to it. As far as the API is concerned, I think to a lot of Swift developers, that can be a big challenge. Now, I know there's like some CocoaPods or Swift packages that try to abstract that away. But still, I know it's like hard to wrap my head around a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and also because of the the security stuff that we're dealing with uh, as an insurance company, uh, we also have to make sure that uh, the transport layer, so that's the network traffic, that that's also secure. And uh, th there's a lot of details involved if you if you do OAuth uh, type of uh, flows uh, in your app. And there's also a lot of stuff that you can do uh, wrong there. And then on top of that, we're dealing with uh, third-party vendors that uh, parties like Broadcom that have uh, a big enterprise presence, but their SDKs are not always completely up to date with uh, the current uh, practices uh, or the current norm because yeah, it's it's just not updated too frequently and then you also yeah yeah you often run into the situation okay i can use the vendor sdk or we can do it better by just uh, doing stuff directly and that's always a trade-off that we're we're looking at really because for one uh, third-party vendor we just decided not to use their sdk and for the other we we are just using it because yeah uh, more control is in this case uh, more important to us than having a convenience uh, with an SDK, really. So you mentioned uh, ATS. Like, what do you think? What are some things besides just allowing any old domain to to work? 
What are some tips that you have that developers should be doing when they're implementing ATS in their plist file? Well, um, the thing with ATS is that it's um, you're always creating exceptions to the norm that Apple has uh, set out. And most of the things that you can put in an exception into the plist for are uh, exceptions that allow older encryption formats or older protocols. And using these older protocols, they just increase the risk of a man in the middle being successful at intercepting your traffic and uh, changing your uh, content or observing your content. And it really depends a bit on your product. But you can imagine that somebody inspecting uh, your network traffic can be bad, but somebody changing it can be even worse. Because if you're a banking app, imagine uh, your uh, transaction being intercepted mid-flight and adjusted and then forwarded again. Of course, there are things that any decent banking app would do on the client and the server end to put some sort of hashing or validation on, on the message payload. But still, uh, you want to make sure that this, uh, this, this, this secure pipe that you're trying to create between your client and your server, that, uh, that nobody can get into uh, your uh, channel really. Uh, because even the observing of certain transactions or certain network traffic can be a bad thing depending on the use case that you're dealing with. And these ATS exceptions, they they just decrease the security of the uh, of the channel. Yeah, I think it's a really great point that a lot of developers don't don't realize. Um, and especially in your industry, I think it's incredibly important uh, to to keep those in mind. I remember actually a really good talk that I went to at TriSwift a couple of years ago by uh, Felix Krauss of Fastlane just talking about all the different man-in-the-middle stuff that people can get away with uh, on iOS. And, and develop, I'm really glad developers are becoming more and more aware of that stuff uh, right now. Yeah, it's also Apple has a great piece of documentation available in regards to security on the iOS platform. And it's a... It's a it's a somewhat uh, overview document. So uh, for an iOS developer, it's a, it's a great uh, starting or jumping off point to to get into the security related content that is available within iOS. And also for people not directly involved with software development, it gives a good overview of what high level mechanisms are actually available within iOS. So that as a manager, you can actually ask of your developers, "Hey, uh, can we focus on these?" areas of security which is available within ios so that uh, we are actually secure with our solution uh, that we're trying to build so you talked about scalability being really important with the app that you're developing what were Mm -hmm. some like code smells that you realized yeah this is this is a mess that needs to be pulled apart um or what are some things you think developers should look out for when they're when they're developing code um, well, the, the thing is that uh, usually if you if you develop an iOS app, quite often you just put it in one target. So everything is in one target and everything can see each other. And it's quite easy to just, if you need something done and you know that it is done somewhere in some class, to just directly call into that and then uh, getting your results. So it really works out today. But tomorrow, if you need to adjust uh, some fun- piece of functionality, Uh, For instance, you're dealing with some code that is related to banking uh, and you're actually using some code that is uh, related to some insurance policy. Then at some point, a developer starts changing the the code, which is in the scope of the 
security, uh, which is in the scope of the insurance policy. And then all of a sudden stuff sort of breaks at the other end of the room, so to speak. So basically, if you're, if you're like, uh, compared to a real world example, if you're like uh, adjusting your door and uh, you're just uh, adjusting some screw and then all of a sudden uh, like a small uh, picture frame drops off the wall because you just uh, screwed out the screw that's keeping up that thing, that's kind of an indication that, that something is attached to each other in a way that it shouldn't really be. Because if you're working with uh, a bigger code base, you want to be sure that uh, if you're working on some area of the app, that you don't break stuff at the other end of the app as an unintended side effects of your changes. And we were seeing that quite a lot actually within our code base. And another really typical thing that you see in larger code bases that is a smell is there's there's one way to actually do something and there's a second and there's a third and maybe there's even a fourth way and all four basically do the same thing uh, except in one or two small details. But if you take it down to the essence, then all code paths that you're looking at do the same thing. And uh, that's that's a maintenance nightmare because if at some point, because if the, in this case it was networking-related code, uh, something had to change on the server end and we needed to deal with that. Instead of just changing that on basically one line, we needed to look up four locations in the source code to see what we needed to do there. And because you know there's four, who can actually guarantee me that there's not five or six or maybe 10 of these same situations as well in the code base? So not only is isolation important for you not breaking stuff but unintendedly, but it's also important to keep an overview of what you are actually trying to accomplish within your code without being unsure whether or not you changed everything that you needed to change. Yeah, I've become like a big fan of uh, using Swift packages to like separate my code bases and doing that rather than just frameworks. And like that's been fantastic because I can easily unit test, I can easily do CI stuff with it. I don't have to worry about um, a lot of the the maintenance and the cost of just having a ma- major code base in one target, which sounds like was a big big issue with you guys. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely it's been a big issue. And and also we had a legacy of uh, of five years of software development with us because we had like Objective C, Swift, and we're now transitioning into Swift UI. Uh, fortunately, over the year of two thousand and twenty, we've been able to really reduce the number of lines of uh, Objective C. But we did notice that if you have um, if you have a mixed uh, source uh, project in uh, in Xcode, the the bridging between Objective C and Swift it really eats a lot up it, it eats up a lot of time within the compiling of your project. And what we've noticed that is that the more Objective-C we were able to throw out of our uh, source tree, the quicker our compilation was actually uh, getting. Wow, that's uh, awesome. I, I already mentioned that we had a compile time clean build about five minutes, but it was uh, double that uh, at the beginning of the year. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Wow, that's awesome. So before we close out, do you have any other tips uh, for developers and managers out there for keeping their their app scalable and easy to maintain over the long run? Um, best thing that I can come up with is to make sure that as a manager, you, fas- you facilitate the software developers to be good craftsmanship. Uh, so good craftsmanship for a software developer means that they, they know what unit testing is. They can do unit testing. There are a lot of time to actually do the automated testing. 
um, but also to allow your software developers to to do more exploratory things uh, so that they can actually come up with s- solutions for the issues that they're facing because uh, if you ask any random software developer in a team so hey so what's the biggest issues that you're dealing with uh, most likely uh, they'll come they can come up with a list of like three or five things and quite often if you ask them hey so do you have any ideas on how you can solve this they might have some idea but they didn't spend the time to actually explore explore what the solutions could be Uh, so that's on the managerial side and as a software developer uh, i'd really make sure that you request time to work on your own development as a as a software developer so that you get better at your craft and also to make sure that you spend some thought on why you want to do certain things in your code base so that you can actually explain it to the people who uh, control the money, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> because what I noticed is that if you can explain to your manager or your business uh, sponsor to why it is important to do something within the code base and what the value might be, and of course you cannot express the value in direct hard currency, but if you can give some indication of value, then uh, you'll probably have a much better time in um, having these discussions with your business sponsors because uh, in the end I think as a software developer as a tech guy and a manager guy you all have the same goal you want to be successful as a company because uh, having a successful company means that both of you will have a paycheck at the end of the month and next month and next year and it, it all it all leads to the same result really so what I notice is that software developers and the people trying to manage them is that they feel they have very different goals. But if you dig a little deeper, then their goals are quite often in line. And if they're not, then that's something that needs to be worked on. Could have been said it any better. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where could people find you online? Uh, that's uh, appforce1.net. And that's basically my website. And uh, there's also all the other content that we discussed is uh, quite likely available uh, there uh, through some links. So that's the podcast, the book, Cocoa Hats NL. It's, uh, it's Cocoa Hats.NL. Uh, that's the landing page of the community that I'm running. I think those are the two most important ones. For my podcast, look for AppForce One in your podcast player of choice. And uh, you shouldn't have a hard time uh, finding me. So that's AppForce One. And we'll have links to that in our show notes, as well as to his interview of me and talking about my year in review will also be a link in the show notes there. Thank you so much for coming on, Jorn. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for your time. People can find me on Twitter at LeoGDM. My company is Bright Digit. Please take some time to post a review to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thank you so much for joining us for this very special first episode of 2021, and I hope you have a happy new year. Happy new year, everybody. Mm